Investors are hungry for a new IPO. Motley Fool Money starts now. Everybody needs money. That's why they call it money. The best Global Headquarters, this is Motley Fool Money. It's the Motley Fool Money Radio Show. I'm Dylan Lewis. Joining me in studio, Motley Fool Senior Analysts, Matt Argersinger and Ron Gross. Great to have you both here. Dylan. You doing, Dylan? We've got a splashy IPO, a look at hidden genius and stocks on our radar, but we are kicking off with the big macro. Ron, we got an update on inflation this week. New CPI data shows inflation up 4% for the year, ending in May, down from April's check-in and down substantially from last year. This seems like good news, Ron. Yeah, I'll take good news where where I can get it. Um, Lowest level in about two years. That sounds like good news to me. Uh, The smaller than expected increase reflects decreases in the cost of energy, gasoline and electricity included in there, a slowdown in food price increases, but on the other side, Rent and housing does remain elevated. Used cars and trucks do remain elevated. Now, this is somewhat backward-looking, um, which is a criticism the Fed has fallen um, to. Those things do remain elevated, and they're important because housing makes up about one-third of the index's weighting. So, whatever happens to housing is going to have a really big impact on that consumer price index. Uh, core inf- inflation, if you strip out food and energy, a little bit hotter, up 5.3% from a year ago. So, important to understand that as well. Um, But I think, as you said at the top, we will take good news where we can get it. We got an inflation update, and we also got an update from the FOMC. You got to love it. It's almost like they know we're paying attention to both of them at the same time. Uh, This week, the Federal Open Market Committee decided to keep rates where they are in what some folks are calling a skip. Ron, we're going to skip Matt right now and stick with you here. What jumps out to you? So, following the release of that CPI, Data, the market guessed correctly that there was nearly a hundred percent chance that the Fed would skip. And that is exactly what happened. The vote to skip uh, a rate increase was unanimous. But there's always a but, right? The Fed also signaled that rate increases could come later this year. Fed officials indicated they expect to raise rates two more times this year. I don't believe that is a foregone conclusion. I believe they will look at the data and make the appropriate decisions. That's what they think currently right now. Um, Investors basically shrugged that off, although at first they didn't like hearing two more. But they shrugged it off. Things look pretty good. Inflation is moderating. Economy remains solid. Maybe the labor market remains too solid, quite frankly. The Fed probably wants to see some weakening there in order for them to feel comfortable that inflation will continue to come down. But the markets have been strong. Um, Inflation looks good. We're not anywhere near a recession. Right now, so that soft landing becomes more possible. And don't forget that Kava uh, IPO that we'll talk about in a bit got people just a little bit giddy on Thursday. Yeah, I think things are surprisingly excited in the markets. And, you know, we we see some short term news and some near term positivity. But if you take a step back, Matt, and look at where we've really been over the last nine to 12 months, there's a lot of good results and good returns here for investors. There is. I mean, speak, I think Ron said it right when he said giddy, uh, because Guess what happened about a week ago? The S&P 500 
hit 20% above its October lows, which, you know, if, if you're you know, kind of a technician there that says, hey, we're in a new bull market, whether you believe that or not. I think what's fascinating about the stock market lately, and it's just been a relentless uh, rise for the market, is you know, traders will often call this a lack of breadth in the market. I, I'm not a trader, but it is interesting to see, I think, the disparity between the market cap weighted S&P 500, which is the traditional measure of the index. Uh, so, that year-to-date, uh, this is as of Thursday's market close, it's up over 16% for the year. Now that that's I mean we're not even six months through the year that's a that's a fantastic year right let alone a six months return, but if you look at the equal weighted version of the S and P 500 which you can you know there's the Invesco S and P 500 equal weight ETF RSP as of, as of Thursday that's up only six percent and then if you if you come into my world right now of dividend stocks if you look at the Schwab U S dividend equity ETF that's actually down two percent year to date so. You look at that and say, well, wait, gosh, there's a, there's a whole section of this market, this S&P 500, that's not really even participating in the bull market. And a lot of, I think, traders would say that's, that's probably bad news. But you could look at it this way. Uh, it does tell you that most of these stocks haven't participated. And if they start catching up to the rest of the market, uh, and that's usually what happens over time, the equal weight kind of does catch up to the market cap weighted, this bull market could be for real. I mean, if these, if these small cap companies, these mid-sized companies start contributing to the returns, Wow, look out look out ahead. We've started seeing people refer to this a little bit as the S&P 7, where there's a very small portion of companies driving a very large percentage of the returns in the market. Ron, do you feel like the other 493 companies <laughs> in the S&P are going to start pulling their weight at some point? You know, they're they're not necessarily weak, they're just weaker. You know, we have seen some strength in industrials. Retail actually showed some signs of life just recently. You saw Target and others move up. Um, S&P as a whole, 19 times forward earnings, which people will point out and say, well, that's not so cheap, be careful. But if you strip out the the stellar performance of the Nvidia's of the world, you'll probably see something that's a little bit more reasonable, um, and I think that's important to understand. Right. I think if you look at the equal weighted again, going back to that equal weight S and P, the forward multiple is closer to fifteen, which is kind of around the historical average for the market. If we're looking for another encouraging sign in the market, the lonely IPO market has a new darling, Ron. <laughs> Fast casual restaurant brand Kava listed on the New York Stock Exchange this week. Shares nearly doubled in their first day of trading. It seems like people were looking forward to this one. Oh, yes. Giddy, another word we will continue to use. I go way back with this restaurant. I'll tell you a 10-second story. It's a local Rockville, Maryland startup, which is where I currently live. And I talked about Kava on the show pre-pandemic. I talked about them when they um, purchased Zoe's Kitchen in a private transaction. And I mentioned that I thought one day they would go public. The next night, I'm eating at their full-service Kava restaurant, the one that has waitresses and is full-service. And I saw the owner, I called him over, told him about our radio show, and then I talked about him on the show yesterday. And he said, oh my gosh, I heard that show. That's you? He called his wife over. He offered to buy us drinks. He was so excited. It was so much fun. He was giddy. He was giddy. It's a wonderful restaurant by the way, the full-service one, as are the other ones. So, that's my little story. Fast forward four or five years, and this IPO is not just a big deal for Kava, but for the IPO market, which has had a really weak, lackluster 18 months. But this one, boy, as you say, people were were geared up for it. It wasn't a cheap valuation to start with, and then it doubled. It's a 263 
fast casual chain. They have a dips and spread business that they sell in stores like Whole Foods. I happen to like those as well. They did acquire Zoe's Kitchen um, locations. They've converted 145 of those currently into Kava's. Real success story, three, four, four high school or even uh, elementary school friends got together to start this. They're going to use the proceeds to keep opening up new stores. The wrap on the valuation is that they're not profitable. That's because they're in growth mode. Their store economics are pretty good with about 20% margins on a store basis. Um, so if they stopped growing right now, they probably would be quite profitable. But at double the valuation from the IPO, I would say let's be careful here. The stock did start to sell off on Friday. We're probably seeing some people flip the stock and make a quick profit. But it's a great concept, great food. I'm a big fan. Just has to trade at the right price for me. Matt, I think a lot of people are paying attention to this one because we have been so desperate for new names in the market. Do you feel like this reception maybe opens the door for some of those other big name private companies out there, the Stripes, Reddits, Instagrams, Discords of the world, to say, you know what, maybe we'll make an entrance in here. I think that that could be right, Dylan. Not that Kava is the one that kind of breaks the floodgates, but I mean, it has been, as Ron said, a lackluster period for IPOs. 2021, of course, was the record for IPOs on U.S. exchanges. There were 416 IPOs that year that raised almost $160 billion. And that's a huge year. But then it completely fell off the table last year. Uh, there were just 90 IPOs. Um, less than $10 billion was raised. It was kind of the lowest year since really coming out of the financial crisis. It's picked up a little bit this year. There are actually 33 IPOs in the first quarter. That's that's a high number for me. I didn't realize there were that many. Uh, and then there's been, you know, you had Kava Sense. You also had Kenview, the spinoff of the Johnson Johnson consumer health business. And as you mentioned, there's companies like Stripe, Reddit, even SpaceX maybe could be mm. in the offing. I think it's all about the overall market, though. Here we are again. We're close to all-time highs in the stock market. Credit markets are kind of not as, you know, you know, unforgiving as they thought they might be, so it could open the room, the door for more. And this pent-up demand is one of the reasons you saw Kava's stock jump so much. And so the the next question people are asking is: This another sweet green, which saw the same thing happen, but not so great since then. Stock has come way back down, or is this Chipotle, or perhaps something similar to Chipotle? And right, and by the way, what industry benefits usually the most from a big, from a healthy IPO market? Well, the big investment banks, right? Another part of the market that really hasn't participated in this bull market just yet. One prediction I do feel pretty safe on. I'm, I think Ron is going to be going back to Kava this weekend, <laughs> trying to get some free drinks after talking about it on the radio show today. For sure. <laughs> All right. After the break, we've got a $10 billion deal that flew under the radar and a company benefiting from AI in a big way. Stay right here. This is Motley Fool Money. Welcome back to Motley Fool Money. I'm Dylan Lewis here in studio with Matt Argersinger and Ron Gross. Matt, earlier in the show, we were talking about how inflation is moderating a bit, especially in food prices. Looking at results from Kroger this week, seems like we're starting to see some discount and maybe a little bit of slowing down in those price rises. I think that's I think that's right, Dylan. I mean, I think a lot of investors know about Kroger, um, but they might not know it's the second largest grocer in the United States behind. Walmart. Uh, it has around 2,700 stores, 35 states. And it's not just Kroger, it's Ralph's, Harris Teeter, Food for Less, Smith's, even a Dillon's in there. Dillon. Hey! Um, but yeah, fiscal first quarter results are pretty good. Uh, same store sales up 3.5%. Uh, revenue of $45 billion was roughly in line with guidance, uh, and earnings came in a little better. Um, I think to your point, Dylan, it's companies like Kroger that, that sell essential items, you know, so they're a little less susceptible to the shifts. 
and consumer discretionary and kind of the pricing changes we've seen there. Uh, but it helps that that those prices are coming down for things like food uh, and basic healthcare items. Um, the one thing I wonder about though is. There is still inflation in the market. You are going to have a rollback of SNAP benefits here in the, in the next few months. How do the, how do its lower consumer you know lower income consumers, which which often go to Kroger, how how might they be impacted by that? Um, we've looked at Kroger a lot for our dividend investor service here at the Fool. It's got a great track record of, of paying and growing its dividend. Um, the one thing that's held us back though, and that's kind of hanging over the company and the stock, is that they. Uh, they're trying to merge with Albertsons, which is the third largest grocery company in the United States. Uh, the deal was announced way back in last October, um, and the idea was if, if Kroger can acquire Albertsons, it would kind of help them keep pace with Walmart and Amazon, who's making big inroads into the grocery space. Uh, grocery space, excuse me. Uh, but the deal, as many deals right now, it's still under regulatory review. No real visibility in sight is when it actually gets approved. What's interesting though is if Kroger is able to co- combine with Albertsons, they'd have about 13% market share. Still way behind Walmart with 22%. So you're trying to see why that merger wouldn't be allowed to go through. Ron, I know you weren't watching Kroger results too closely, but over under, AI came up five times on the company (laughs) call. Which direction? It's got to be over, right? It is. The answer's eight, (laughs) which is surprising maybe for a grocery store. Uh, But we continued to hear AI in results from Oracle this week. Uh, The company closed out its fiscal year by posting $50 billion in revenue for 2023, and the company's cloud segment was a big part of the reason why it's emerging as one of the preferred offerings for people doing generative AI, Ron. It used to be all ball bearings. Now it's all AI for those Chevy Chase fans out there. (laughs) The stock's on fire. I mean, this this is not your Oracle from May. 2000, when it got caught up in the telecom equipment boom and the internet boom, and then kind of came back down to life, it's it's back. And this boom in generative AI is really boosting demand for all of their cloud services. They're focusing on expanding their cloud infrastructure business. They're going to try to compete with Amazon and Microsoft, a daunting task because they are clearly the market leaders. But it appears there's plenty of dollars to go around, at least at least now, um, as as the, the the hype and the froth really has taken hold. Um, they're boosting their cloud offerings. Uh, they have a deal with Nvidia. Um, they acquired Cerner last year. That has helped um, the business, and it's showing up in the numbers. Cloud sales up 54 percent. That's after a 45 percent jump in the previous period. Their cloud infrastructure business up 76 percent. Their application business up 45 percent. So very very. Very strong. Overall sales were not as strong, only up 17%, and margins were down a bit because operating expenses were up. So you you boiled that all down and you had an earnings per share up about 8%, not bad at all. In terms of guidance, management said cloud revenue should increase at least as much in the year that just ended, as we just saw. And we also expect to deliver high operating margin percentages, higher operating margin percentages this year, they said. Only 23 times. This is not a crazy expensive tech stock. It's very interesting. You know, Adobe just reported similar results. It's all cloud, it's all AI. Adobe's at 29 times, Oracle at 23 times, Salesforce at 27 times. Not, not too bad. Might want to take a look at Oracle. Yeah, for a business that's on fire, I want to put some quick numbers to that, Ron. Oracle, currently at all-time highs, up 80% over the past year, 140% over the past three years. Is this a name that we should start be start paying more attention to in the likes of big tech? Because it has sleepily become nearly a $400 billion company. I, th- I think yes, and Larry Ellison is reaping a lot of those rewards as, as now one of the richest people uh, in the world. Um, 
These numbers have to continue, though. These kinds of growth numbers have to continue. Otherwise, these stocks all of a sudden become expensive. So, we need to keep an eye that growth persists. One spot to look for growth, uh, NASDAQ buying Adenza, and another sign of optimism in the markets. Uh, Matt, we saw a pretty big acquisition this week. NASDAQ buying financial software company Adenza for $10 billion. This company specializes in risk management and regulatory issues. What did you see in the release for this announcement? Right. I mean, and let's keep in mind that you know NASDAQ is, I'm surprised about this. We talked about this during the, before the show. NASDAQ's only about a $25 billion company. So here they are doing a $10 billion deal. That's, that's that's big for them. It's definitely a needle mover. Um, but you said it. It's kind of a provider of what quote mission critical risk management and regulatory software to the financial services industry. Let's hope they can run some of that you know regulatory software maybe over their own deal to see if it actually gets the green light because <laughs> they're going to have to do that. But um, yeah, I mean this is for a Nasdaq. This is kind of a high growth, high margin, recurring revenue type of business um, that they see boosting growth and margins uh, overall for the company. Uh, it comes with 115% net revenue retention, which means that customers are generally spending more more dollars over time uh, on the platform. Does this get approved? Um, I think that's the big question for you know for everyone in this market right now. I think it does because this is first of all it's coming from private equity. It's not another publicly traded company. Um, it's it's while it's big relative to Nasdaq size, it feels more like a complementary addition to the business rather than Nasdaq going out and acquiring another exchange or you know another trading business. Um, but I think the bigger point for me is that. This is just another example that companies are interested in doing big deals. I think last year deal making was non-existent, but here we are, 2023, especially with the market, you know, it, technically in a new bull market, kind of approaching a new all-time high. Uh, investors are getting, gosh, I'm going to do it again, Ron, <laughs> giddy, giddy, or companies are getting giddy about doing deals. Yeah, last year deals not great. Um, people worried about recession. Even the first quarter of this year not great. Although. They topped $1 trillion, but still um, relatively not that strong. But we are starting to see a pickup. I, I'm seeing a lot of activity in healthcare as well. Uh, United Health did a deal, CVS did a deal, Leap Therapeutics, Amgen, Johnson & Johnson, all did deals recently. Um, and I think that will likely continue. Um, you're also seeing retail um, deals, always you see tech. So, I, I do think we're going to start to continue to see a steady flow, which again, will make those investment bankers Awfully happy. I know, and that's what, yeah. And I, I'm glad you brought up healthcare space because I think that's another sector that hasn't really participated in this market. And the fact that there's probably some good valuations there to get deals done. Matt, one final note on that Nasdaq deal. I was a little surprised to see the stock sold off 10% on the announcement. We have seen some of these big mergers and acquisitions go sideways recently. Do you think there's a little bit of pessimism around? It? I think it's a big pill for you know. Speaking of healthcare, it's a big pill for <laughs> Nasdaq to swallow. And the fact that they're they're funding the deal through their own stock is probably a reason reason for why the sell-off there. Ron Gross, Matt Argersing, and fellas, we will come back to you in the show in a little bit. But first, we've got stories that show the hidden genius of Spotify's Daniel Ek and Shopify's Toby Lutke. Stay right here. You're listening to Motley Fool Money. Welcome back to Motley Fool Money. I'm Dylan Lewis. Whenever we can, we like to learn from the best. And so does reporter and author Paulina Pompliano. 
She spent the last few years studying some of the world's most successful people each week as part of her newsletter, The Profile. The lessons and framework from that work are in her new book, Hidden Genius, The Secret Ways of Thinking That Power the World's Most Successful People. This week, Paulina gave us a rundown on how Daniel X's view on leadership led to one of Spotify's greatest innovations and why you might want to rethink any idea that can fit into an elevator pitch. Your book has no shortage of stories, and uh, you take it a step further, and you get into the concepts and frameworks that a lot of folks that you've profiled um, really lean on in order to be successful. You've got lessons from folks like Al Pacino. You also have lessons from professional rock climbers. Having spent so much time uh, looking at this stuff, what have you personally picked up from studying the hidden geniuses? I'll talk about one framework that I've really applied to every area of my life, which is um, I heard uh, LinkedIn founder, and he's also an investor, um, Reid Hoffman say this once on a podcast, but he said, consistency plus time equals trust. And if you think about that, that's something that you can implement in every single area of your life. It could be relationships, it could be your professional life, it could be business, it could be investing. Basically, when you, you, you don't trust people who constantly say they're going to do something and then break their promises. But it's not like, it's not like one time I was like, Hey Dylan, I can't do the podcast. Let's reschedule. It's like constantly over and over and over, over a long period of time. So, you know, you can apply that to your personal relationships. Like you are probably attracted to people if you're a healthy person, you're probably attracted to people who keep their promises to you. They say like, hey, let's go out on this date and, and they keep it. And then over a long period of time, that's how you build the foundation for a relationships because you have to like trust each other. Like Charlie Munger says, like, if you're about to get married and your marriage contract is 47 pages, I suggest you not enter because it's like that. That's not a bedrock of trust, right? But for me, the way I implemented this is when I started the newsletter, the profile in February of 2017, I was like, okay, this could go like one of two ways. I could start this and say, I'm gonna publish every week, like I'm gonna be super consistent. But then, you know, life happens. Somebody passes away, you have to go to a funeral, you have to travel across the, uh, the world sometimes, you have a child, you get married. All these life events happen and you know that you're probably not gonna be able to be consistent. So I was like, what things can I put into place to keep that formula because I know that if somebody signs up on a Friday and then I have a vacation that weekend and I don't send it on Sunday, they're not gonna get it until like a whole week later. That means that they're gonna be like, what the hell is this? Like, I forgot I signed up for this. So I put like things into place that would allow me to be consistent even when life happened so that if something came up, I still have like a backup, like here's, I'm gonna send you this on Sunday. It's not gonna be like the complete newsletter, but it's gonna be something that keeps that consistency going. And I truly believe because I haven't missed a single Sunday since February of 2017, that allowed me after three years of doing the profile for free, earning people's trust and then asking them like, hey, I have a paid layer. And then they were willing to back me financially because they knew I wouldn't take their money and like run off to Mexico. Yeah, Paulina, if I'm not mistaken, that concept that you're laying out there in the book, you talk about it as the compounding element of trust and this mm -hmm. idea that these habits accrue over time and, and build. And I think a lot of our listeners as investors are very familiar with the idea of compound interest, but it's something that I think 
can probably be taken a step back and applied to a lot of the things that people do. And it's like, basically, Naval Ravikant says, like, all returns in life have come from, like, the compound interest of something. And it could be money, but it could also be trust. One of the people I talk about is Shopify CEO uh, Toby Lucky, and he says that whenever he meets somebody, your like your trust battery start is, is at like 50%. He calls it a trust battery. He's like every single interaction you have with this person either discharges it a little bit or charges it a little bit. And um, over a long period of time, you kind of know where this person stays. Like, is, is that a reliable person? And he's like, aim to be a person whose battery consistently stays charged at over 80%. I think that's a good metric to follow. And I think Toby Lutke is a pretty good person to follow in general. We're, we're, we're big fans of him uh, here at The Fool. We've been following Shopify for a long time. Uh, I'm curious, I know you've really talked about people from all walks of life here, but we have a focus on the publicly traded world and, and companies that are publicly traded leaders of them. Are there any other names in the investing sphere that, that our listeners might be familiar with that you have some stories about? Okay, for example, Spotify <laughs> CEO Daniel Ek. Um, I find him fascinating because he has kind of this really interesting concept for leadership and the way he approaches it. And he talks about how he he one time heard like an airline CEO say that uh, you should invert the leadership pyramid where the CEO is not at the top, they're at the bottom. And he was like, that would be interesting. Like, how could I implement that at my company? So, you know, we've all heard of like bottoms up leadership, but what, what does that actually mean in practice? And he talks about how if you see yourself as the CEO is just an enabler of creativity and resources and giving fuel to people's ideas, that's the lifeblood of your company. You are not the lifeblood. It's all the employees and all the people that make it that. And um, he talks about how, as an example, he had this like team of engineers working on this feature that they thought would be amazing. They thought um, if Spotify could have a personalized playlist for every single user based on their own interests in music and whatever, could they create a personalized playlist for them? And Daniel Ek was like, eh, that's all right. Like, it's not worth spending all this money and time on this. It's probably, you know, a very small portion of people are going to use it. They ignored what he had to say and continued working on it despite his lack of enthusiasm. And then he found out that they shipped it, they launched it to the public through the press, like with everybody else. So that just shows, by the way, how as a leader, because if you're terrified of your boss, you would never do this. You would never launch something without them knowing. So they did that. And he was like, I remember reading it in the press and being like, oh my God, this is going to be a disaster. And that turned into Discover Weekly, which is one of Spotify's like most loved features now. And it, I think I think the lesson in that is a lot of times the CEOs at the top, if it's a top-down approach, they stifle creativity. But if you kind of even just have the mindset of bottoms up, it, it seeps through the culture and people are more bold in taking risks than they otherwise would be if, you know, you have a terrifying, terrifying CEO who's like, it's my way or the highway, and they run it more like a dictatorship than a democratic process. As a longtime Spotify user, I'm thrilled that that was the culture and approach there at the company. I love my daily mix and I love my Discover Weekly. I liked the the discussion of executives there, and you know, for 
your work at The Profile and for the book, you spend so much time scouring the internet, looking at all of these different pieces of who these people are, these moments that kind of speak to them and help people create a composite. Our analysts and our listeners are trying to do that all the time when they're looking at management companies or a founder. And having spent so much time doing it, I'm curious, do you have any tips for how to do that well? Yeah, I do. <laughs> so in the book, I tell the story when I was in college and I had a journalism like 101 class and we had to write a profile of a classmate. I ended up profiling my classmate, but I had only just done the interview and I wasn't happy with it because I was like, God, this person's so boring. Like I asked them all these questions, but they it wasn't a really exciting life or exciting answers that they gave me. So I went to my professor and I was like, listen, it's still early on in the process. Like, let me change my subject. And he was like, no, uh, because he recognized that like I, as an interviewer, hadn't done my job. I hadn't evaluated this person properly, um, but also I hadn't asked the right questions. He said, no one is inherently boring. They're only boring because you haven't asked the right questions yet. So that one thing I think about on a daily basis, I think that to evaluate somebody well, you not only have to ask them good questions, which is key, but also you have to, Hans Zimmer calls it listening to the subtext. So you have to listen to the subtext of the conversation or the situation that you're in. What are they saying without actually saying it? What is their body language saying? Are they being defensive when asked certain questions? But also the thing that I pay most attention to as an interviewer that I think all investors should pay attention to is listen for the things that people emphasize and the things that they downplay. Because like that tells you more about what they're trying to show and display and what they're kind of maybe trying to hide. I'm constantly listening for that. Like when I ask you about your life story, like why are you telling me that part? But like, what about that other part, et cetera? Why are you emphasizing this portion of the business, but you're not really talking about that one? Why are your answers long for this question, but really short for that one? So it's like listening to the subtext and understanding the incentives of the person giving the answers. One thing I wanted to ask you as we close here is uh, there's an idea that you bring up in the book, and it's from Ed Catmull, who's uh, one of the co-founders of Pixar. And it's, I think, counter to almost what every business student is taught in class. And it is that good ideas do not necessarily fall into an elevator pitch type approach where they're easily explainable. Can you talk a little bit about that and also just any of the kind of counterintuitive elements that you pick up from the book? I love that the elevator pitch, like, I hope I kill the elevator pitch. No, um, the elevator pitch is the idea that if you're stuck in an elevator with like your boss, you can explain your idea in 30 seconds or less. And you're taught that all through school. Like, what is your elevator pitch? Um, succinct to the point where it's easily understandable. But Ed Catmull, who's incredible and he's very, very creative, he says that unfortunately, that's not how creativity works because if you tried to <laughs> uh, explain some of the most successful Pixar films in 30 seconds or less, it would sound insane. He's like, imagine describing Toy Story. He's like, people would be like, ooh, that's gonna be like overly commercial, like all these toys people can buy, like what the hell, or, um, or uh, like Ratatouille. 
a rat that can cook, like that sounds disgusting. And if not done tastefully, it can really end up being disgusting. So he's like, if you can sum up your idea in 30 seconds, that means it's probably iterative of something that's already happened or somebody has had this idea before and it's been done, whatever. It's not that original. Basically what I took away is that to be a truly original creator, you need three things. You need to have a really unique point of view on the world. You need to have a really ambitious idea. And also you need to be able and ready to fail spectacularly in the pursuit of that idea. And um, Kat Mull talks about how at Pixar, they have these like war room meetings where they really like go after and attack the idea from all sorts of angles. And he says it gets really heated, but it's never personal. It's also what Julia says, like attack the idea, not the person. Um, see it as like a separate entity. Because once you, you are able to challenge it in that way, it gets better and better and better. And then I think he says like, by the way, the film is never like finished or good. He's like, it's still, sh but we put it out anyway, because this is the best possible version that we could get to. And I think like that's, that's really counterintuitive. But the other thing I want to touch on is um, when you're looking at like public company CEOs or people you are evaluating to make an investment in, I always think about, uh, he's now at Bridgewater Associates, but Mark Bertolini, and I was able to interview him about this, but he told me that he has this like whole idea of like the four levels of Taoist leadership. He, he came up with it, but it's based on Taoism. And he, he says, as a leader, first your employees hate you. The second level is they fear you. The third level is they praise you. And the fourth level is they, um, they don't need you. You're invisible because the company can like run itself. And I think most people, when they think about leaders, they don't think about like, how will I, how will they become invisible? Because that is the ultimate goal, right? Like if the leader is successful, the organization can run itself. And I think when you're evaluating people, you should look like, is this person just trying to make themselves needed or useful or there, because in the case of Bertolini, his final chapter at Aetna was to shepherd the sale to CVS Health. So like, you know, he, he did his job to his investors, employees, whatever. And, and I think like when you're evaluating someone, you should be like, is this the type of leader who aims to be invisible? Alina Pompliano's book, Hidden Genius, is available wherever you get books this June. Coming up after the break, Matt Argersinger and Ron Gross return with a couple stocks on their radar. Stay right here. You're listening to Motley Fool Money. Get up, stand up. Stand up for your right. Get up, stand up. Stand up for your right. Get up, stand up. Stand up for your right. Get up, stand up, don't give up the fight. 
As always, people on the program may have interests in the stocks they talk about, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against. So, don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. I'm Dylan Lewis, joined again by Matt Argersinger and Ron Gross. Gents, let's get over to the stocks on our radar. Our man behind the glass, Dan Boyd, is going to hit you with a question. Matt, you're up first. What are you looking at this week? Well, we've talked a lot about sectors of the S&P not participating in this bull market, and energy is the worst among them so far this year. So, the contrarian in me tells me that I want to look for bargains in the energy space, and because I'm focused on dividends and dividend growth, I really like Chevron, ticker CVX. Um, not only do you get a dividend yield of almost 4%, Dan, but you get a dividend that's grown at least, uh, or about the two times the rate of inflation over the last 10 years, so pretty strong growth there. It's a fully integrated energy giant, so it makes money from upstream to downstream assets. Uh, that keeps revenue and profits steadier, even when oil prices are volatile, and they usually are. Here's why I like best, Dan. Chevron is producing a ton of cash right now, investing in the business, buying back stock, paying a dividend, and that's what oil prices around $70. Management expects they can maintain that level of investment and shareholder yield with prices as low as $60 a barrel, so there's a margin of safety in there. Love the income, love the valuation, and I think it's one of the safest ways to bet on the energy sector. Dan, a question about Chevron. Seems like a stock that's got it all in the bag, Maddie, except for that whole climate change thing. <laughs> right. Certainly a long-term concern. Uh, definitely Chevron is working on that. They've got a lot of initiatives in carbon capture and other things in that space. Ron, what's on your radar this week? I've got something a little different this week, courtesy of my friends over at our Value Hunter service. Full disclosure, I own the stock as well. It's Burford Capital, B-U-R, leading provider of capital to the legal sector. Typically, this means they will fund a plaintiff's legal costs in exchange for a portion of any financial recovery from that lawsuit. Um, they've only lost about 9% of their concluded cases. They've got a very strong track record. They recently won a huge case in Argentina that could be worth $4 to $7 billion. The whole market cap of the company is only $2.9 billion. Now, that'll probably be negotiated down, and they won't get the total windfall, but that's just one deal. Um, the stock did pop significantly as a result, but uh, my friends at Value Hunters uh, think the stock is probably uh, worth double where it is right now. Um, and the CEO said, for those who are longtime listeners, that the company is firing on all cylinders. Huge! How could you not like that? Dan, a question about Burford. So, this is a company that gives people money for lawyers to sue people? Yes, lawsuits are very expensive. People can't often um, fund those out of their own pockets, so they will lend you money, and they will take a portion of the proceeds if you are successful. Wow, sounds even more evil than oil companies. <laughs> Dan, you've got law, you've got energy. What are you doing here? Which one's going on your watch list? Wow, I hate both these stocks, Dylan. <laughs> this is hard. Uh, no, I'm just kidding. These are both uh, look like some pretty solid companies here. Uh, I think I'm going to go with Burford because I'm really curious as to uh, how this company works and what they can do in the future. Nice. Put it on the board. Matt Argersinger, Ron Gross, thanks for the stocks. Thanks for being here, guys. Thanks, thanks Dylan. Dylan. That's going to do it for this week's Motley Fool Money radio show. The show is mixed by Dan. Boyd. I'm Dylan Lewis. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.